All right, let's go. So Numbers. We just finished last week, longest chapter in Numbers, longest chapter in the Old Testament that's not Psalm 119. And it was the presentation of the gifts to the, uh, to the basically the inauguration of the temple, the tabernacle rather, and to get things going. And then we saw at the end how the last part of it now, God finally speaks. The, Moses goes and is able to enter into the tent of meeting and able to speak with the Lord. And that's important because God has spoken to Moses throughout this, uh, all the books that we've looked at so far. But this is unique in that now he's speaking from within the tabernacle. The operational function of this little Mount Sinai is now up and running. And the narrative is going to do a quick uh, link to a previous section or, or a previous concept that's going to spell it out a little bit before then moving on to the main bulk of the book, which is describing the journey that Israel goes on. And you'll see that a lot in Hebrew narrative in the Bible, where it'll tell an event, and, it'll, and then there'll be like this, almost like an interruption, and then a seemingly unrelated event, and then the next section, the previous event, picks up. It's, it's like an interlocking chain. Uh, it's chain narrative, how it kind of interlocks with the next thing, cycles back for a minute, and then goes on to the next thing. It's different than how prose or writings in modern English work, but it's something to be aware of because it's just a normal thing. So it makes the Bible confusing sometimes. You read a chapter, then you read something else, and then the next chapter is like something that happened before that. So just be aware of it as you're reading. But a lot of times it's for thematic purposes, <clears throat> for a theological or a literary purpose. And in this case, there was the voice of God, Moses speaking to him, and now there's going to be an emphasis on the illumination or the light of God. And that's something that throughout Numbers, throughout all of the Torah, God is, God is speaks and God is light. And those are two images that frequently accompany the appearances of God, the theophanies of God. So, chapter 8, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the seven lamps, they are to light the area in front of the lampstand. Aaron did so. He set up the lamps so that they faced forward on the lampstand just as the Lord commanded Moses. This is how the lampstand was made. It was made of hammered gold from its base to its blossoms. The lampstand was made exactly like the pattern the Lord had shown Moses. This is picking up. We've already seen the lampstand being described in, in, in back in Leviticus and back in Exodus when it was being created. But this is now, this is the thing that sits inside the tabernacle right outside of the Holy of Holies. And it's a golden lampstand. The word that lampstand in your Bible, every time you see the lampstand, the word's menorah. So you can just call it the menorah because we all know what menorahs are. Um, and it's exactly what you would see on Hanukkah. The menorah, the seven lights of the stand. And it was made to basically look like a big golden tree. So the branches would come out, two on each side, three, sec three sections of two, and then one in the middle. And what this is telling us is that those were to light, to give light to the front. In other words, they're all facing one direction. It's not just shining its light haphazardly like the lamps were, and it, they're called blossoms or buds, but it's like a little flower, made to look like a little flower blossom that would hold oil, and the wick or whatever was burning would be immersed in that. And that's how it would burn. That's how a very simple thing. But so there would be this little basin and there'd be channels that the oil could be poured to add to the lamp. 
and then it would burn. So it was basically like saying, put the, put the spotlight to the front of this thing. And what was in front of it? The table with the bread of the presence. It was right across from it on the north side. So the lampstand's on the south side, shining forward to the north side, and right to the west of it is the curtain, the Holy of Holies. So this is what's going on inside this place where God is speaking to Moses. There's a place where God's illumination is given, and it's shining right at the thing that symbolizes God's presence among His people, which is that table with the bread that symbolizes the meal, the fellowship with God. So all of this imagery is basically shouting, I'm here. I'm in the midst of you. I'm, I'm here with your, you know, your celebratory meal, your, your sacrificial meal, your worship of me. I'm here. So when you enter the tabernacle, when the priests enter the tabernacle, they're entering into God's dining room. They're entering into God's, they're sitting at His table basically, having a conversation, and His light is there, and the, His presence is there. And so that's an important factor in the theology of Israel, and the theology of the tabernacle, is that this is where we meet with God at His table. This is where we meet with God in His presence. There's no statue of the God, there's no image of the God, there's no idol of the God. Why? Because people are the image of God. Humanity is the image of God, not a little carved idol, no graven image. And so um, the, 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 tabard, or excuse me, the menorah came to symbolize not just God's presence with Israel, but the seven lamps, the seven lights was symbolic of or had connotations of, of like seven is the number of wholeness or completeness or perfection or fullness. And light is the symbol of of light, illumination, driving out darkness, presence. And so this was also theologically communicating that God's presence, God's the light were the, the, the eyes of the Lord on all of creation. And this isn't a guess. This Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10 says, these seven lights are the eyes of the Lord that go throughout all the earth. Literally that run throughout all the earth using a double set of metaphors. God having eyes and those eyes running. Right? Like God literally doesn't have eyeballs that focus light rays. And His eyes certainly don't have little legs that run around in the earth. But it's a double metaphor to convey the image that God's presence and God's vision everywhere. You can't, you know, the psalmist say, where can I go to escape your presence? You know, Jonah found that out. Even down in the depths of the sea in the heart of a fish, God is still there. And so this is all packed into the symbolism of this menorah right there in the tabernacle. So God's light, God's vision, His presence, His, His all-seeingness, even though it's in a tabernacle, it also ranges throughout all the earth. All of these things convey this paradox of the God of Israel. He's a local God in that He dwells with His people, but He's the God of all creation and that you can't go anywhere where He is not there unlike the gods of Egypt, the gods of Babylon, the gods of the Hittites, the gods of the Assyrians. So then it goes on to say, verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, take the Levites from among the other Israelites and make them ceremonially clean. To purify them, do this. Sprinkle the water of cleansing on them. And we don't know what the water of cleansing was actually. This is the only time it's ever mentioned. It could be the water that was used in that ceremony to... Um, to justify the woman accused of adultery, or it could be the woman or the water that's mixed with ashes that's used to consecrate the tabernacle itself. We, we, we don't know. It's just the water of cleansing they knew 
that Aaron and his sons knew what it was. So to do the, purify them, do this, sprinkle the water of cleansing on them, have them shave their whole bodies and wash their clothes, and so purify themselves. Have them take a young bull with its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. Then you're to take a second young bull for a sin offering. Bring the Levites to the front of the tent of meeting and assemble the whole Israelite community. You're to bring the Levites before the Lord and the Israelites are to lay their hands on them. Aaron is to present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the Israelites so that they may be ready to do the work of the Lord. So, first thing the Levites had. Now, these, the priests have already been ordained. The priests have already been consecrated. These are not the priests. These are the Levites, the tribe from whom the priests come. The Levites are going to be set apart for the work of the tabernacle. And what's the work? To take down and carry and transport the tabernacle according to how God had already gave them directions for it two or three chapters ago. So the Levites are, they're not the priests, so they're not full clergy in that sense, but they're also not from the other tribes. They're, they're, they're an in-between. They have the work of the church, the, and, and the church is the word for Israel. That word congregation that you'll see throughout is, is the same word that's translated later as church. Um, the, the congregation, they are the ones who, who do the work needed to keep it going. You know, we have equivalents of Levites everywhere in our churches. If you've ever done any ministry, you've been beholden to someone who moves the chairs, who sweeps the floors, who bakes the baked goods, whatever it is, lay leaders, people in that are doing the work. And so in Israel at the time, there's this, there's this layer of holiness. You know, we've seen holiness as like a concentric circle. So the most holy, Aaron and the high priest, then right beneath them, there's a le- not quite as strict, but still pretty strict in terms of cleaning, cleansing, is the priests. And, uh, and then outside of that, there's another layer, and, it, and it's not quite as strict as the priest, and it's, but still requires cleansing and setting apart of the Levites. And then outside of that, setting apart of all the peoples of the tribes. And then outside of that, you have the nations and the, the unclean and the impure. So these are that buffer Remember, the Levites are to keep Israel from getting into or encroaching upon the things of God. They're actually guarding God's presence from people approaching it as they wish. Because God's already set up, this is how you will approach me. Not just how you want. God's, I'm not a casual God. I'm an intimate God, but I'm not a casual God. And that's a dichotomy that Israel will have to navigate its entire existence. But the Levites are called and they're set apart. And the, and the rituals used were rituals that were used in cultures around that time. Like the Hittites in, in around the 1300s B.C. had the same type of thing for their priests. They'd have to shave off all their body hair. They'd have to wash. They'd have to wash their garments. They'd have to you know, only eat certain foods. There, there was, so this was not unheard of at the time. It would have made more sense to them. You know, to us, it's, it's kind of strange. Like, why do you have to do all this stuff? It's ceremonially clean, but... You're not really doing, you know, but for them, it's a big deal. And even like hair, shaving your hair. You know, we live in a world where there's such thing as shampoo. You ever think about that? Like, and conditioner and, you know, barbershops, beauty salons. Hair for us is a little vibrant thing. Not as much in the Old Testament. You know, you'd make it, you'd clean your hair by putting oil in it. Your hair would be oily and that wouldn't clean it. That would just make it not smell terrible. Because you were always around animals, you were always around dirt, you worked all day, there's no deodorant. 
there's no perfume. I mean, there were perfumes, but it was more oil that you put on. So again, in that culture, hair was not always seen as something lovely and, and luscious and vibrant. They didn't do the head shake thing that girls do today in the movies or commercials. So to cleanse yourself, shaving off the hair, not just of your head, but of your arms, your legs, you know, shave, getting rid of that was, is, was like peeling away the impurities or the accumulated impurities that would have come that gotten on to you. So it's just another way of cleansing. And uh, it's one of the reasons why the Egyptians, by the way, the Egyptians were, they shaved everything. Like if you look at the ancient artwork, Egyptians, you never, they're never hairy. They never have beards. They never have body hair. And then you look at Egyptian depictions of Hebrews or, or, or Canaanites or people outside of Egypt, and they have big bushy beards and they're really hairy and kind of unkempt. So the Egyptians sort of prided themselves on that. You know, we're clean, we're smooth. We're, the, the, that explains if you ever look in some of the art You'll notice that. But God then says, so after He tells them what to do, bring them before, and, and the congregation, all the people of Israel, lay their hands. Now, does every Israelite lay their hands? Well, not, probably not. It's more like the heads of the tribes, the representatives, the, the, the chiefs that we've seen in the previous chapter, symbolically would lay their hands or, or something like that. A symbolic laying of hands. Not like every, you know, however many thousands of Israelites all had to lay their hands. But the point was, lay their hands on him just like that you would do when you bring your sacrifice. You bring your sacrifice of a bull or a goat, what do you do? Lay your hand on its head and dedicate it. It's basically taking your place. It's standing in your place as the sacrifice. And so that's what now they're doing this, but they're doing this to the Levites. The other tribes are laying their hands on the Levites and saying the Levites are taking our place. And why are they taking their place? Well, Let's keep reading. Verse 12, after the Levites lay their hands on the heads of the bull, so the, the Israelites do that for the Levites, then the Levites in turn do that for the sacrifices on behalf of Israel. After the Levites lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, use one for a sin offering to the Lord, a purification offering, and the other for a burnt offering, that's a consecration offering, to make atonement for the Levites. Have the Levites stand in front of Aaron and his sons and then present them as a wave offering to the Lord. In this way, you are to set, apart the, set the Levites apart from the other Israelites, and the Levites will be mine. After you have purified the Levites and presented them as a wave offering, it's the third time it said that, they are to come do their work at the tent of meeting. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to me. I have taken them as my own in place of the firstborn, the first male offspring from every Israelite woman. Every firstborn male in Israel, whether man or animal, is mine. When I struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, I set them apart for myself. And I have taken the Levites in place of all the firstborn sons of Israel. Of all the Israelites, I have given the Levites as gifts to Aaron and his sons, the priests, to do the work at the tent of meeting on behalf of the Israelites and to make atonement for them so that no plague will strike the Israelites when they go near the sanctuary. Moses, Aaron, and the whole Israelite community did with the Levites just as the Lord commanded. The Levites purified themselves and washed their clothes. Then, the, then Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord and made atonement for them to purify them. After that, the Levites came to do their work at the tent of meeting under the supervision of Aaron and his sons. They did with the Levites just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses, 
This applies to the Levites. Men 25 years old or more shall come to take part in the work at the tent of meeting. At the age of 50, they must retire from their regular service and work no longer. They may assist their brothers in performing their duties at the tent of meeting, but they themselves must not do the work. This then is how you are to assign the responsibilities of the Levites. So this tells us four times that the Levites are a wave offering on behalf of Israel. What's a wave offering? If you remember our Leviticus study, the wave offering is the offering that's presented and then taken back. That's the waving motion. Forward and backward. Not waving hello, but forward and backward. So the Levites... A wave offering was a way of giving something to God, but unlike the whole burnt offering, usually when you give something to God, you burn it up completely. And, it, and the smoke rises and it, it literally goes up to God you know, in, in the picture that's going on. Well, God doesn't desire human sacrifice. God never asked for human sacrifice. Unlike the gods of the surrounding cultures, God hates human sacrifice. And so it makes that clear. But the concept of human sacrifice at its core has a kernel of truth, which is devoting completely something that's of the utmost worth to the God who has given everything in the first place. So God doesn't want people to literally sacrifice their firstborn sons to appease Him. That's not the type of God He is. But He does want them to know, I am the type of God who claims sovereignty over even the life of your most precious thing, which would be your firstborn. So in way of upholding that while repudiating the actual act of killing is through this making it a wave offering, making them a wave offering. So the Levites are given to God and then God through this gives them back. That's what a wave offering is. You know, I'm going to offer God this dessert that's my prized dessert and it's delicious. So I'm going to offer it to God. We all understand that I'm literally giving it up and then God gives it back to me. And now I can eat it and celebrate. That's how wave offering worked. So that's what they're doing, but not with a dessert. They're doing it with a whole tribe of people. The Levites take the place of all of the firstborn of Israel. And God is calling them, in, even in the consecration of the Levites, God is pointing their eyes back to the Exodus event. Saying, do not ever forget your freedom came at the expense of all of the firstborn of Egypt and all of the firstborn of Israel, but what saves you from losing your firstborn, because I wasn't bringing judgment on you as I was bringing judgment on Egypt, was this sacrificial act of the Passover lamb and something else dying in the place of your firstborn that God provided, which was the lamb. All this has deep, deep theological implications for the New Testament. You know, in John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's imagery that Jesus is fulfilling scattered throughout all of this. And more important, for us today at least, from, from here on out, the Levites will always walk around as living sacrifices. There'll always be sacrifices. They were offered as a wave offering, but not dead on an altar, living, working among God's people, being the go-between between God, a holy God, and a fallen people. That's the role of the Levites as living sacrifices. So, when you read your New Testament, when Paul says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice in Romans 12, he's not just making up an imagery out of nowhere. 
And he's not just using a phrase that sounds clever or makes a good get well card or, or something like that. Like He's basically pulling in the theology of numbers and saying, you be like what the Levites were in the time of Moses in the tabernacle. You be the thing that stands between the holiness of God and the salvation of the Gospel and all of the people of the world who need it. You're the go-between. You're the thing that serves the rest of humanity. Because that's what the Levites were. They were the ones who served the rest of Israel. They served them by being these living sacrifices. So it's not a call of just about being pure and holy. Like, offer yourself as living sacrifices. Sounds like, you know, be more holy. Yeah, but that's part of it, sure. But that holiness is for a purpose. The purpose of that holiness is to then convey that holiness in the service of other people serving the God who has set you apart. So it's, it's again, it, it, it unpacks knowing the Old Testament, having an idea of what's going on back then helps us see what the New Testament teaches about us today. And so it gives us these lessons, but these lessons aren't on the surface and they're not spelled out in detail in the New Testament, largely because the people that were New Testament was being written to were thoroughly familiar with the Old Testament. They had heard it all their lives growing up in synagogue or as God-fearers, when they visited the synagogue, they'd hear it read, or as converts to the faith, the only Bibles that they knew of were the Old Testament. So the New Testament invites us into the story of Israel. And the goal is still the same. The goal of the Old Testament and the goal of the New Testament are the same. It's not two separate dispensations in terms of like what God's trying to do. He's trying to do the same thing in the Old Testament. Reach the world, bless the nations through the promised seed. That's what he's doing in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, same thing. The seed just becomes singular and it has a face. And it's Jesus. But it's the same mission of God. So what the New Testament does is it pulls us into this story of numbers and it says that's what we are. Us, predominantly Gentile group of believers in Israel's Messiah through faith are called to live as human sacrifices. To live as modern Levites. By keeping the Levitical law, no. That law has closed. That law has passed. The new covenant has dawned. And we are to be the equivalent of the Levites in this new covenant. So what does that look like? Well, the whole New Testament spells that out. And Jesus and His words and deeds and actions spelled that out. But they, <clears throat> then He gives a final note. This is how it's going to be in terms of you enter this service when you're 25. Now earlier, when it talked about the Levites, it said 30. There's a discrepancy here. Some people have tried to say, well, this, the reason is because there was this five-year period of training, apprenticing, and then you would officially become. Eh, it's possible. That's not out of the question. Others have said, well, it's because there's two different traditions that were clumsily woven together into one narrative. I, I don't buy that approach to biblical interpretation. I think it's sloppy and I think it's useless. Um, but a better instance would be either there was this five-year period where you, know, you kind of worked and watched and then became a full member of the Levites that carry the things. Because remember, the stakes were high. As Uzzah found out later, the stakes are high when you're transporting the Ark of the Covenant. So it's not like this thing you just did. Uh, it would require a time of apprenticing. That's possible. Or what's just as possible as it is with a lot of the numbers in Scripture is that in the, in the transmission of the text, 
the number 25 and the number 30 got mixed up because the Septuagint version of this says 30 instead of 25. Uh, and so there could be a textual variant, which throws some people for a loop, but it's very normal in biblical studies. And uh, something that, if you want to know more about it, take Bible for the rest of us course that I offer. Um, but anyway, that's the goal. That's what God calls His people to. Now the last thing they're going to do before they set out, because of this whole Levites thing, God's calling them. Before he, this is the key. Before He sends them into the future of Canaan, the future promised land, He pauses and He points them back to the Exodus. Before they go into Egypt triumph, or get into Canaan triumphantly, they look at how they came out of Egypt triumphantly. And that's what the Levites remind them of. And then the next chapter, chapter 9, they're going to do the whole thing, which is the, tabern- or the Passover. The Passover is going to celebrate. You know, you've been here a year. You've been at the base of this mountain, what seems like forever, getting these instructions and learning. One more time, we're celebrating our freedom from Egypt. And then we set out to the promised land on the march as no longer a rabble of slaves coming out of Egypt, but as a marching orderly army of God marching into Canaan. So that's what the next chapter is going to be about. And so we'll see that when you come next week. But that's it. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.